see you. Those that I know, my name is Rob, there's Hannah said, and I'm one of the pastors here at Well of Life. And uh, Lynn and I just got back from Sri Lanka. We had a really great trip there. We ministered. Um, uh, we were at the Christmas carol service on Saturday night in Colombo. And then we had, uh, and I heard probably like eight Christmas carols we sang. One I've heard before. So I don't know, there's a whole world of Christmas carols we've never heard before. Can you believe it? So we went to do some of those. We had Sunday morning with Gateway Church in Colombo. It was just cool. Um, hung out with Kevin and Teresa for most of that day. Monday night had dinner with them. And then on Tuesday, we met with leaders from around the country. The guys came from Trinco and Tabunia and Tunawatuna and Colombo and Nagambo and Tandy and all around just for a, a day together for training and praying and worshiping together. And so it was, it was really good. I appreciate your prayers. And as always, we value you guys um, for releasing us. We know that uh, it, does, it doesn't take fast as a church whenever you release any of the team to be able to go out. And we really do appreciate you releasing us as to the guys in Sri Lanka. It's Christmas time. Man? Oh, it's, it's Christmas time! And uh, I've, uh, I've preached that I'm doing this morning is stop following the Christmas crowd. And you know what kind of a cryptic title that is. And there it is there. The guy in the front of the red shirt is grumpy. Yeah. I was about to say, man, that's not the happiest looking people. But uh, I want to say, when you look from this side, it looks pretty similar. So you guys can smile while I'm preaching. I have no problem with that. Actually, the, the title I was going to put on there, but it was going to be too long. It's stop following the Christmas crowd and reach out in faith for God's power, which is actually what I want to preach out of today. And I'm going to preach from a very un-Christmassy text from uh, Luke chapter 8. So if you don't mind turning there so long while I just introduce it. But I do... I do love this time of year. I mean, I think Christmas is an amazing time. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. It seems like uh, everybody celebrates Christmas these days. I was uh, in Sri Lanka now, which is a 98%, I think it's a 98% Buddhist country, and yet there are Christmas trees everywhere and Christmas carols going on. And even here in Dubai, you can walk in the store and hear that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, being played out over the loudspeakers and singing about the coming Messiah and incarnate deity. And you're thinking, holy moly, everybody getting in on this thing here. But we, we know that there's a big difference between being in a crowd that's following Jesus and being somebody that actually engages with and draws on Jesus Christ himself. And the thing is, the lower our view of Jesus, the more ordinary our perspective of who he is, the more difficult it is for us to receive the healing, the deliverance, and the forgiveness that Christ has for us. And the Christian life, as we are called to, is, um, is not a passive life. It's actually the most engaging and intentional adventure of leaving behind sightseeing, selfish living, small thinking, and embracing the sacrificial, believing the impossible, and um, the, the can-be-made-possible world that God calls us into. And so as we celebrate Christmas, it isn't kind of, I hope there's enough presents, and I hope there are enough presents in your homes. I do like the thing of giving presents away. It's been a bit of a hectic season for us, so Keith and I sat down on Fruit.com the other day, and he did all his shopping online. What a world we've come to. It was all delivered this week while we were in Sri Lanka, and he wrapped up all his presents, and they're under the tree. Not his, his presents that he bought for us. We don't get our kids to order for their own presents online. Not yet, anyway. We'll leave that for later on. But uh, right now, it, it, is, it's a, it is a great season, but it's not distant. It's not the Father Christmas Jesus that we come to. He might be able to get you the Xbox One 
if you've been craving for what I have in this Christmas, I think we've got on the top of Christmas list, if you don't get him, just go ahead and go, yeah, no. But uh, he might be able to give you the Xbox One, the Father Christmas Jesus. But what he can't give you is healing, and he can't give you deliverance, and he can't give you reconciliation, and he can't give you the wholeness that our souls are craving for. And that's actually who we come to over this Christmas time. Well, I trust that's the one that we come to. If you're ready now to read from Luke chapter 8, we'll read from verse 14, and uh, we'll start off with a story about the crowd. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, Jairus, who was ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, let's not just read this. Let's put ourselves in, this, in the shoes of this ruler and imagine what it must be like for the only child he had He's dying and there's nothing he can do. And we hear about this man through Jesus that can do something about him. So Jairus goes to him and he implores him. That's a word like begging. He, 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 he falls almost at the feet of Jesus. Can you come and heal my daughter? It says that Jesus went, or as Jesus went, obviously Jairus' house, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So Jesus says, Who was it that touched me? And all denied it. Jesus said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out to me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble to teach her anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, only believe and she will be well. And when, it, when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father of the house, the father and mother of the child. And all weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. So taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to, to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. I'm struck as I read that passage by that statement where it says, where Jesus says in verse um, 46, someone touched me. And you've got to ask yourself, what's going on here? Because Peter's right. There's a, there's a whole crowd of people pressing and touching and jostling with Jesus as he walks through the crowd. And... Uh, Many people want to be a part of a crowd around someone like Jesus. Some people are in the crowd just to see something happen. They kind of, Herod, who said he, he was watching, he was listening to the stories, he wanted to see what was happening, but he just didn't want to engage with it. He was a, a voyeur. Some of you are like that on Facebook. You're those people that never put comments, you never like anything, you just scroll. You know exactly what's going on in everybody's life, but you're not engaging with anybody. I've become that. Actually, these days, because you put 
promise of him to argue with you and that is a whole other thing altogether. But there, there's that kind of that approach to encountering Jesus. They're the people that want to they want to hear from this good teacher. They love he's, he's so eloquent. Isn't he amazing when he talks and he heard the things that he says and every now and again I he's taking a dig at those Pharisees and the religious. I, I like this guy, but they're not putting it into practice. They're not believing all that he says. They're taking the parts that they like. They're listening to the music that, that they enjoy. And then the others that just enjoy feeling a part of something bigger. I, I think this might be one of the dangers even of church life, is that people can come get up all of those music. Let's go see what's going on. Let's, but I feel like I belong here, and I hope you do, and it's great that you feel like you belong, and it's great that you maybe you walk away from me and you say, well, gee, Rob preached so well today. It was so good what he said about this, and the illustration was so funny, whatever. But we don't want to just be the crowd that gathers around Jesus. In the middle of this millennia of people, it says, it, New Living Translation says it like this. It says, someone deliberately touched him. In the midst of the crowd, somebody reaches out and says, I'm not just bumping against you, Jesus. I'm not just walking around you. I'm not just part of the crowd, I am reaching out to you and drawing something from you. And who was it? Well, it was a woman, which I know that doesn't seem that much of an issue today, but it was a bit of an issue in the crowd. She was a rabbi and she's reaching out to touch him. She was unclean. She had this discharge of blood for 12 years, and I'll speak about that in a second. She has had no more money. We read that she spent all of her money, and uh, she had a disease that, that the doctors had run out of guesswork, and what it was, run out of any ways of possibly treating or healing. And think about what you would feel like in her situation. Just think about what the world that she lives in. She is hopeless now. No more resources to save herself. No more doctors that she can go to. It's like, I can go to the doctor. There's nothing worse when he goes, I just don't know what the problem is. I mean, you'd much rather he goes, well, I know exactly what it is, and these are, this is a terrible treatment you're going to have to go through to deal with it. At least you know what's going on. But when he goes, I don't know. I don't know why you're suffering like this. There's a hopelessness that comes upon you. And with it comes a desperation. And she was alone, and she should never have been in that crowd, because Leviticus 15, verse 25 onwards, talks about women who have the discharge of blood. So this is, this is above and beyond the, the normal menstrual cycle of a woman. She just is continuing to bleed for 12 years that has gone on. And Leviticus tells us that if somebody bleeds like this, they're unclean. And everything they sit on is unclean. And everything they lie on is unclean. And it gets worse. If I'm clean and I touch the thing that this unclean person sat on, I become unclean as well. So you can't even be around people because you're just spreading your, I'm not, it's not physical uncleanness. This is a spiritual uncleanness that you're spreading to everyone around. What it meant in the old covenant, if you were unclean, was that you can't go into worship God. You couldn't come into the temple because you were unclean. So if we were living under Old Testament law, you would have to stay outside the warehouse. You wouldn't be able to come in to the holy place and worship God. And it might not seem like to us who are so free like anything significant, but it's profoundly significant to her. It's the ultimate rejection and being outside. And uh, you know it's amazing? That's Leviticus 15. You know what Leviticus 16 is? instructions on the day of atonement. So after God talks about all of this, and we, we have to wonder to ourselves, why would God put these laws in place? Why, why, if 
does seem unfair, hey, that somebody's sick and now they, they, they pass out. But God was teaching Israel and he was teaching the nations that surrounded them. And friends, he, was even, he is even teaching us today that holiness of God is not something natural for us. It is not something trivial. It's not something that we can just rock up with our jeans on and go, hey, holy God, like this. It's, it's we are separated from him because we are non-holy. And all of these ceremonial laws were just a reminder to us that God is the holy other and we can't just approach him. It's not like God has just horribly decided that he's going to keep himself at arm's length. But sin and the holiness of God cannot coexist. And God was creating like a safe zone between us, a buffer, and bringing us to a place where we can understand that we need atonement. This is Uncle Stephen's uh, intervention. You know, you've got that Uncle Stephen who's an alcoholic and all the family and the friends get around. He comes home from work one day, kind of opens the door like this, and he walks in and Bob's there and Joan and Auntie Biff and what, Uncle Biff, I suppose, Biff Elba, which is a Russian name, I don't know, whatever. They, they all gather there and they go, and he says, what are you all doing here? What they're trying to do is get him to admit that there's a problem so they can work towards a solution. This is God's divine intervention taking place. Friends, we've got a problem. We're lost. We are blind. We are dead in our sins. And then God goes, Leviticus 16, the, the day of atonement, which points towards the coming Christ. And what's so beautiful about this passage as Luke records it is it sets a picture of the grace of God. Because in her, in the flowing of Jesus' blood, her blood stops flowing. It flows through us. In, the, um, the, in Jesus becoming unclean, she becomes clean. She receives forgiveness. In Christ's rejection is her acceptance. See, what the law, the keeping of the rules cannot do, grace can do. When somebody under the law, if I'm unclean and Matt's clean and I touch him, he becomes unclean. What spreads under the law is separation and uncleanness. But under grace, if I'm unclean and that's clean, when he touches me, I become clean. What spreads under grace is acceptance and forgiveness and healing. So she was lonely, but Christ brings her in, and she was desperate. And it's been said that desperation is the mother of invention. I wonder if it shouldn't say desperation is the mother of faith. There's something about coming to the end of our plan, of our resources, of our own strength, of ourselves, and when we get to that place, like, I've got nothing left. And you look just down the road, who's standing there except God the Father with his arms wide open saying, I've been waiting for you to arrive. See, the, the, often the only time we can find him and the only time we can find what we need is actually when we realize, actually, I can't depend upon myself anymore. And it's so easy, friends, to follow the crowd, to just rub shoulders with Jesus without ever drawing from the power of God our lives. And that word power in the Greek is the word dunamis. And it's one of those easy words to remember because it sounds like dynamite, doesn't it? It's the dunamis of God. It literally means force, but it most often speaks of the miraculous power of God. And I love this scripture in Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 20. Paul is praying for the church and he says this, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's dunamis incredible greatness of his dunamis for us who believe. 
This is the same mighty dunamis that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at Christ's right hand in the heavenly realms. So God is calling us not just to rub shoulders, not just to be in the crowd, but actually to reach out and draw down the power of God. Too many people come to church on a Friday saying, I mean, there's a whole lot of different attitudes that you're supposed to come with. Some people sit there kind of going, okay, God bless me. Come, do your best. Try to break through my, my kind of walls, whatever. Try and bless me. Other people go, well, I'm just going to sing my songs where I'm going to leave again. I'm going to hang around because I hope something happens. But actually, what we need to be doing, each of us, when we come together as priests, is to lay a hold of the garment of Christ, the, the, the hem of his garment that we might draw the power that you need for the situation you're in. How do we do it? Well, we won't do it when we're still depending on human institutions. I, I'm always amazed how people put so much um, weight on politics and political parties. I'm so grateful to God for the change that's taken place in Zimbabwe. But a new political leader won't save Zimbabwe. I'm even grateful for the change that's taken place in South Africa. Really wonderful that our president will not be reigning <laughs> for a few more years. But that won't save South Africa. You see, when we depend upon political systems, we're not at the place yet where we draw down the power of God. If too many nations still believe that it's political systems that are going to save them or economic change is going to save them, what's going to save us is when we start to lay a hold of Christ and draw His power into our nation. And I know for me in our nation of South Africa, we need the healing, redeeming, restoring power of Christ in that nation, not just another political party. It doesn't matter who rules, but Christ can be ruling in our hearts. We won't draw on Him when we depend upon our own resources. It is a beautiful thing that God fills up our bank accounts. I'm not against that. It is wonderful when you, if you forget to buy a home. But I promise you, neither your bank account, nor your job, nor your home is a source of your power. That is Christ alone. And we won't be able to draw down that power when we're worried about our reputation. You know, when I was teaching on, um, on worship in Sri Lanka, and... Uh, I, uh, I was talking about how David became even more undignified. And in the middle of the service in Sri I tipped my shirt and I began to jump around circles. And they were, they, they, there was some sucking of air and, oh, I can't believe what he's done. And I was just trying to make the point that Jesus, that Jesus calls us to abandon our reputation. And the poor um, interpreter that was standing next to me, he'd been following me diligently while I was preaching. And uh, he'd been doing every action I've been doing. And then when I suddenly took my shirt off, he's like, ooh, holding on to his buttons. <laughs> but the thing that makes us so drawn to David is he, he, he didn't care about his dignity, and this woman didn't either. If she had got caught, this unclean woman, in the middle of this crowd, mostly men, laying a hold of a man that was called a rabbi, she would have been utterly humiliated, if not worse than that. She didn't care about her reputation of reaching out to Jesus instead. And so, the thing that we need to do in order to draw upon this power of Jesus is we need to come to a place where we're humbly obedient. And so often we fill ourselves with substitutes. It's like, you know, we say to our children, don't eat this chocolate, Johnny, before dinner, because you're going to, what you're going to do? Ruin your appetite. And some of us are eating so much junk food that we've ruined our appetite for the real. We've become satisfied with the food that gives no nutrition. Can I just mention McDonald's and Burger King at this point? And any fast food out there, do not 
if you work for this place, I'm sorry, but go and go eat from those places. There is no nutritional value. Get cook proper food in your home. And we settle for these substitutes, and then we fall, and we've got no room to eat the food that's truly nutritious. And we settle for the substitutes and take the place of food. And maybe it's drinking. Maybe it's hanging out with our buds at the club. Maybe it's watching TV. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's the book you're writing. I don't know, whatever it is, but the source of your life, the thing that should stir you up inside, is none other than Jesus Christ and no other than Jesus Christ. Death and faith. For the parallel version in Mark chapter 5 and verse 28, uh, Mark records that she said this, for she thought to herself, if I could just touch his robe, I will be healed. And God wants you to come hungry, and he wants you to come full of faith. And so Luke takes us on in the story, and this is the second part of it, where Jesus um, has received the news that, news that the girl is dead. He's on his way to heal her from a sickness, but she doesn't die, and he gets the news that she's dead. I cannot even comprehend what it must feel like to be that father who's on his way there, and I don't know, maybe that might have made it if this woman hasn't interfered and got involved and Spent 10 minutes trying to find out who's touching Jesus, and now I hear the news that my daughter's dead, and my world crashes down inside of me. Just broken. And then Jesus says these words Do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe, and she will, she will be well. Fear is so powerful. Is, uh, and we live in a world that has got so many opportunities for us to be anxious about every circumstance and report that comes away. How many of you, and I don't want you to put your hands, live with the fear that you're going to go into a doctor's office one day and he's going to give you that bad news? And a little anxiety, like my mom had this, and my dad had this, and my grandfather had this, and, and one day maybe I'll get a report from the doctor that I've got this as well. And that anxiety begins to, to do something in us that grows up into full-blown fear in our lives. Faith is an amazing thing because it reaches into the invisible realm and draws it into our world. That's what it does. That's what that woman did at that moment when she had faith. She reaches to Christ and it's, it's, she drew the power out of him. She said, I perceive power is gone from me. Jesus wasn't walking along. Now, I can't assume what was going on in his glorious mind, but he wasn't thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stick my coat out and catch this woman that I perceive is around there and I'm going to flick some healing power into her like this. Some of the charismatic preachers would feel this is not good. He didn't do that. He's walking along, Peter's talking, John's talking, everyone's talking, and then um, she, she grabs it and pulls it out. And our faith actually can do that. We reach into the heavenly realm and we draw down the blessing and the breakers of God into, as, as they might manifest in our world around us. That's what healing is. We're going into heaven and drawing down the blessing of God into our situation, the breakthrough of God. Now, let me say something about Satan. Satan is a spiritual being. Does anybody disagree with that? We don't see him with our natural eyes. He doesn't occupy a seat in the United Nations. He doesn't drive a red Ferrari. He is a spiritual being. He sits around like this. He is not the equal of God. He is not like, like the yin and the yang. God is the good and the devil is the bad. It's not that. God is his eternally existing, uncreated, creator of all things. And the devil is a created being. Completely different. Creator, created. But both God and the devil are spiritual beings. 
and we feel physical beings and spiritual beings. And one day we will be promoted from the physical life, as it were, into a spiritual existence and a physical existence that combines together. But God will always be spirit, and the devil is spirit as well. And uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. The New Living Translation translates it well, I think, when it says he is the devil, is the commander of the powers in the unseen world. So there is an unseen world around us, an invisible world that the enemy controls. And beyond that and above that is this, this, this unseen world that God is in control of and rules and reigns in. And the thing is, when we, reach, we can reach up in faith and draw down the power of God, or we can reach into this unseen demonic world through fear and draw down the bondage and the brokenness that the enemy wants for our lives. Faith invites God to act. Fear invites the demonic to act. Right? Some of you are saying, see, Rob, you're getting into scary territory here. Friends, I absolutely 100% convinced of this. Faith um, invites God to act. Fear invites the demonic to act. Fear is the kryptonite of faith. See, it, it, uh, it, when we allow fear into our imagination, it disables, disables our ability to, to hold on to God. When, when it comes, our imagination is incredibly powerful. That's why we don't let our children watch those scary movies because when they go to bed at night, the imagination begins to terrify them. It becomes real to them in their, in their thinking. And what happens with us with fear is that when we, we allow it in, it's like a thief that comes in the night and it steals our peace and it steals our joy and it violates our hope. And so Jesus commands the parents, do not and you want to say, well, that's slightly unreasonable right now, Jesus. He's dead, but his command is clear, do not fear. Some people say, but Rob, isn't this just blind faith? The kind of faith where you kind of just turn the brain off, like this, and you just believe. It doesn't matter what you see around you. Friends, it's the opposite of blind faith. How many people, if you're not already a Christian, how many people, if you're in your spiritual journey that are Christians, have you spoken to? that would testify something like this. You know, before I met Jesus, it was like I was blind. And now that I've come to him, it's like my eyes have been opened. All around me, I see the evidence of his existence, the evidence of his sustaining power, and the wonder of his intervention into the lives of men and women. There's a story Nephi Gumbel tells us I absolutely love. He's the, the kind of the guy that started um, the Alpha Course, the presenters. And Nephi Gumbel tells us time in 1966, he chose his age, he was a young boy. It was the World Cup that England won, the only one that ever won. And um, he uh, was watching football, and they got a TV. Couldn't believe they got a TV. So they had this little black and white TV in their home, and it was quite bad. It was snowy. But you could see, really, soccer players in your own living room. I mean, how amazing is this? You couldn't watch it at the stadium. You, now, you could listen to it on the radio. But, but now you could see these guys in a snow blizzard running around playing football. And there goes Bobby Tolton. Bobby Tolton passes out to the law and they get us all crosses. And then, oh, it is a goal. It's like, I can't believe I'm magnificent. And that, the family are all gathered around this little snowy box helping what's going on. And then a friend arrives at their house after a couple of days and says, oh, you guys don't see me. That's amazing. And they turn it on to show him and he goes, what's that? Yeah, that's our TV. He says, you don't need to get that. Just get the aerial in there. And he puts the aerial in and the snow disappears. 
But South Africans, they can actually see who it is on the screen like this. And he says that they were absolutely fine before the guy took the aerial in, but they were never going to go back to that again. And that's what it's like when you come to Christ. It feels like you're seeing everything climbing. And maybe you look at Christmas and kind of go, man, what's wrong with you guys? Until you walk in the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And you're never going to go back again. Your eyes have been opened. See, to believe in Christ is not blind faith. It's the most open-eyed, rational uh, faith you could ever have or decision you could ever make. And then faith, we, believe, we mean that we believe that God is willing and able to help us, to rescue us, to work for our good in every situation we're in. And you might say, well, there, Robert, because I know people, and I haven't personally done this, but they would be, they would be a bit too close on, but I know people that have trusted God with their whole heart, and it hasn't happened for them. And I want to say, I want to quote to you Psalm 91. There's a beautiful passage, verses 5 to 7 in the Psalms, it says this. Listen to this. You will not fear, you, Linda, will not fear the terror of the night. Matthew you won't fear the arrow that flies by day. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction might that wastes that waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, yet it will not come near you. Now, I don't believe, I want to say this, and I'm not saying this touching word, I say this with confidence to the God that I serve, that I will not die of cancer. This is not weird faith. I just have no confidence in cancer at all. I have no confidence that it will take me out. I had a lump on the back of my head a while ago, a couple of years back. It didn't worry me. It was like a small golf ball size until it got a little bit bigger than that. It was like twice the size of a golf ball. And if I lay down and tilt my head over like this, I remember sort of getting embarrassed about the fact that I walked around with this lump on my head and people asked me if I could get a signal on it and things like that. So, but I know actually what was worrying Linda. Linda was worried I had cancer. I refused friends to allow other people have got cancer. Other Christians, other strong Christians have got cancer. And I want to say, I know. Yet, if a thousand fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand, yet will I say. And I, I, I'm absolutely persuaded of this. But Rob, what happens if it does happen then? Well, then I want to take you to one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, which is Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Probably one of the most practical, everyday faith scriptures you can ever live in. And you know the story I hope you do because it's such a beautiful story. And if you weren't taught this growing up, don't slap your parents because they should teach you stories like this. They don't slap you literally. Get this? So the story is of um, Israel's in exile. They've been taken into exile. And there's, there's these four Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, whose name I think is going to Belshazzar or something like that. And so the three Hebrew boys are now... Um, living in this land in the exile, they've got this king Nebuchadnezzar, I think it is, and, and that some of his minions come to him one day and says, O king, how great, how great thou art, and wonderful and glorious in all thy ways. Why don't we build a 60-foot gold statue and have everyone worship you? Now, the king's thinking to himself, well, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm, I probably am God. I didn't know that. Okay, let's do that. Let's build a statue for you and everyone worship you. So they literally do that. Build this massive gold statue. They get all the musical instruments out, and they, they sound this, this massive sound. And at that moment, everybody falls on the ground and worships. Oh, gold statue, oh, gold statue. Except for these three dudes. They just feel a little bit awkward now because they're the only three in the whole nation that haven't bowed down. 
I mean, nothing worse than sending a man to Christ. Men, men don't do well at that sort of thing. You're wondering why your husband's a bit toxic? To help you save face a little bit. That's probably the issue. So this guy, he's, he is so cross. So he reported to me, called the three Hebrew boys. He said, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, why did you not worship me? If you, I tell you what, I'm going to give you another chance. And uh, he said to him, I'm going to take this down again. Let you die this time, you'll be fine. But if you don't, then I'm going to make the fire seven times hotter. I'm going to throw you into the fire. And this is what they say in verse 16. So they replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Listen to this. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. And verse 18. But even if he doesn't, and even if he doesn't, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods and worship the image of gold that you have set up. God will heal me. God will heal her. God will heal him. God will deliver us. God will vindicate them. That's the faith statement there. I will not die of cancer. But even if he doesn't, even if it doesn't appear to be the fact that he's saving me, even if he doesn't do it the way that I want to, even if he doesn't do it in this life, and that's not a cop-out, the very essence of faith, the very wellspring of our peace, our joy, is this understanding that in the end, whatever the end is, will work out for me. I will be vindicated. My trust will be vindicated. Even if he doesn't, I still won't bow to the statue of unbelief or the statue of fear or of anxiety or of offense, of bitterness or of unforgiveness. You see, we, we're called to worship something else all the time. You're always worshiping. You're either worshiping God in faith or you're worshiping the devil in unbelief or fear or doubt or anxiety. And when we allow those things to come into our lives, we're bringing no glory to God, but we are giving glory to the enemy. So Tom and Linda and I have an argument with each other. I think it's happened two or three times in our last week. And um, and sometimes we'll have, we'll have, like, not a good one, like a bad one, that we have to, to repent of. It's not just the issue, but what's the way that we talk about it. And we'll stop ourselves in the middle of it and we'll say, like, who's getting glory right now? Is God being edified by the way that we speak of this? Are you being edified? Am I being edified? There's only one person right now that's, that's receiving this like it's praise to him, and that's the devil. And when we walk in fear and in anxiety and unbelief, the only person that glories in it is the devil himself. And, the, and that Hebrew is that we won't bow to that statue. And I think you know the story. What happens is they, they don't bow as they said they would. And the king said, make that fire seven times hotter. And the soldiers are, are ordered to throw them into the fire. And this is what happens to the enemy. The very trap he sets for himself, he falls into. The soldiers that go to throw them in end up being consumed by the flame. And then the king can't believe. He's rubbing his eyes. Maybe I can smudge it on my glasses so the king can. He sees him. He says, can you throw me into the fire? And they said, yes, king said, you can do it. But there's four walking together in the fire. Four are walking in. It's the 11th hour gone. It's the 11th hour, 59th minutes behind you. The 12th hour is gone. You've lost the battle. You're in the fire. Who's there with you in the fire? Jesus. The very last verse of the Bible, in, well, not of the Bible, it's of Matthew 28, of, of the book of Matthew, in chapter 28 and verse 20. 
maybe it should have been in that order, though. Then it would be the last one. Jesus says, and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Even when you're trusting, and I don't know what you're trusting for now today. Maybe you're trusting for the salvation of somebody that works with you, or you're trusting for a restoration of your marriage, or you're trusting for uh, your wife's womb to open up, or you're trusting for healing in your body, you're trusting for deliverance from cancer, or you're trusting for financial breakthrough, or you're trusting for encounters with God, or you're trusting for signs and wonders to accompany your ministry. No matter what you're trusting for, no matter how late the hour seems, Jesus is there. Do not fear. Only believe and your breakthrough will come. Even when you are surrounded by dogs that want to devour you, when the fire is licking at your feet, when you are ready to breathe your last He's there to take you into victory in the end. Luke 8, verse 54, when he comes into the room, takes the hand of the little girl and says, Child, arise. Stand up. Can you imagine what a vindication it is for that man and that woman, Peter and James and John, as they trusted in Jesus? interesting that he puts everybody else out in the room. I'm not going to have lack of faith and unbelief in you. I'm putting them out there. And this morning, the Lord wants to reach out with his hand and touch 